Welcome to The Matt Haycock Show, a podcast about business, money and life. Matt has been making money and making mistakes for over 20 years. And in this podcast, he shares his thoughts and stories so you can improve your business, finances and life whilst hopefully avoiding the mistakes he and others have made along the way. Listen in and level up. Everybody needs to pull their weight. That That's what it's going to take next, especially since, since we don't have a vaccine available for 12 to 18 months. And the vaccine is the only thing that is going to stop people getting sick. Hey, guys, it's Matt Haycox here, and I've got Laura Spinney with me. Now, Laura is a science journalist, novelist and author. And her latest book is Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Now, this book looks at the 1918 flu pandemic, uh, and Laura's joining us today from Paris, where she's reporting on the ongoing situation of corona for The Guardian, amongst other news outlets. So, Laura, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, My did pleasure. I, did I get all that correct? You did. Good, good. You, I did, almost did it without notes. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> j- jump, jumping straight in there, tell us about your book, uh, because it looks at the 1918 influenza pandemic and its impact on the world. You know, what happened then and what can we take from that and learn from it to today? Okay, so um, the Spanish flu, which wasn't Spanish, we don't know where it started, but it didn't start in Spain, uh, was a pandemic that got underway in the early months of 1918. We tend to say it lasted two to three years. Um, It's one of the worst, if not the worst, pandemics in the history of humanity, vying only with the Black Death of the 14th century. Uh, On current estimates, it killed between 50 and 100 million people. So that's between 2.5 and 5% of the global population. Sorry to interrupt, 2.5% of our global population or or of their global population? Their global global population. Since then, the population has quadrupled roughly. Um, um, We think it infected about one in three people. So that's roughly 500 million people. And just to give you uh, a little bit of perspective, the First World War with which it overlapped killed an estimated 18 million people. Uh, The Second World War, about 50, 60 million people. Uh, We have had, flu is generally considered the most sort of pandemic prone disease. This current coronavirus is maybe proving us wrong on that. But in general, it's flu that causes really global health crises like this. Um, We think there have been at least 15 flu pandemics in the last 500 years. And I'm just saying that because I want to get you get the sense across that the Spanish flu was a real anomaly. So there were, for example, two other uh, flu pandemics in the 20th century, the so-called Asiatic flu of 1957 and the Hong Kong flu of 1968. Neither of those killed more than 4 million people over bigger global populations. So the Spanish flu was really exceptional. And that's why I've written lately that we don't have enough data yet on this coronavirus to say that it's going to be that bad. That was really very, very bad. It may be more like uh, the later pandemics that I just mentioned, 1957, 1968. But I mean, really, the picture has changing minute to minute, hour to hour, and we don't know. Now, from my layman's perspective of, of let's say, um, of the uh, Spanish flu, you know, it, it wasn't, there wasn't anything like, obviously, the hysteria and the talk, etc., around it, because, because obviously, we, we didn't have back then, you know, social media communication channels, etc. I mean, how, how different would things have been for them? You know, should should they have had social media? Should should they have had you know, media yeah. outlets? Would it have been worse, or would it have been more contained? 
Uh, it's a really good question, Matt. I mean, obviously the world was, was very different in many different ways then. Um, also the germ was different. The disease was different. So there's lots of things that, that were different, but the informational aspect I think is fascinating because, uh, so mainly you got your news though in those days through newspapers. Um, obviously, uh, there was no internet, but there was no radio or TV either, really, um, on a, on a grand scale. Um, and so, uh, it was much slower. News was much slower. And then, of course, it overlapped, at least to begin with, with the war. And in the, and during the war, at least in the belligerent nations, there was censorship, massive censorship. In fact, that's the reason that it's called the Spanish flu, even though it didn't start in Spain. And I can explain that if you're interested. It, it'll take me a minute. But, um, our problem is different. We have vast amounts of information and vast amounts of misinformation, all traveling at the speed of light. Um, and I think this is one of our big problems. It, it's against a backdrop of even the experts, you, you, you alluded to it yourself a little bit earlier, even the experts don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to this coronavirus yet. We're all, we're all sort of groping for data to understand it. Um, and uh, obviously there are many people who are much more expert than me, doctors and uh, epidemiologists and microbiologists and virologists and so on. But even they are dealing with a brand new pathogen. So we're waiting to understand what, how this virus behaves. And in the meantime, people are talking, talking, talking. I'm as guilty as the next person. Um, and some people are speaking with more authority than others. But I, I you know, I, I sometimes wonder, actually, if there shouldn't be just one website, one channel of information, at least per country, maybe the Ministry of Health, which is putting out one clear message and updating it all the time rather than, you know, what's actually happening. I mean, what do you think the next steps that you know society should take? You know, when facing something of this potential magnitude. Uh, I mean, we're taking steps on various different levels. We have our governments, which are trying to do their best to manage the crisis in the population. We've got our scientists who are working on vaccines and new antiviral drugs and so on. Um, I, I think, in uh, I mean, in terms of reducing the impact of this pandemic, it's going to take the entire population to pull their weight in different ways. So, for example, the other day I was talking to um, uh, somebody in the Ministry of Health in uh, Singapore, which is often being held up these days as a model of how how best to you know manage this disease. And he was saying, we are really putting the emphasis in our messaging in on individual responsibility, on the social pact. If you feel ill, you must self-isolate, stay at home, don't go to work, don't put others in danger. And then we're asking employers to be flexible about their employees' uh, homeworking. We're asking doctors to be liberal with medical leave um, uh, up to five days in their case. And of course, the government was trying to, they, they were trying to, orchestrate a cross-government response so that all the departments were working together, singing from the same hymn sheet, very important, so that the population can see that the government is united, have trust in them, and therefore is more likely to comply with anything they're asked to do. But um, yeah, everybody needs to pull their weight. That That's what it's going to take next, especially since, and since we don't have a vaccine available for 12 to 18 months, and the vaccine is the only thing that is going to stop people getting sick. We can slow the pandemic without a vaccine, but that's the only thing that will stop people getting sick. How did they deal with the panic back in 1918? <laughs> um, well, sometimes they didn't. I have a vignette in my book about what happened in Rio where the government was compl taken completely by surprise, Rio being the capital of Brazil at that time, um, and you had panic and, and near anarchy in the streets. 
Um, other places were better organized. New York City was probably the most advanced place in the world at the time in terms of public health. And they put in place measures which made a big difference, um, both to the smoothness of life, if you like, in the city during the pandemic, but also to the rates of sickness and death in the city. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think the thing about a pandemic is we're seeing it again with this bug is that once it's out, we can do very little to get it in. I mean, we've had a beautiful de demonstration of that this time, despite the almost brutal lockdown in China and its author authoritarian methods, it still couldn't contain it in the global sense. It, it slowed it down massively and did the rest of us a favor in that way. And that made a big difference. But it couldn't stop it getting out into the world. We have a full-blown pandemic now. So I think, um, uh, you know, we are still in some ways quite helpless against these things. Um, and uh, the only, you know, we just need to pull together, basically. That's our best hope. Now, tell me, you're obviously you're in Paris right now. What is the European reaction to Britain's response? So um, the WHO was critical um saying it wasn't a time for theories it was a time for action uh i'm not really aware of other european nations coming out vocally criticizing the uk but they tend to be following the more of the who line um the the the, the british idea as i understand it and i'm not a public health expert is is um to try and aim for herd immunity that is to try and get people uh to, to try and get um the proportion of the uh, population that has been exposed to a level where the disease can't spread because there's enough immunity in the population um but that is does seem to be rather risky given we're dealing with an uh, a pathogen that we don't know we don't know what level what what proportion of the population needs to have been exposed in order to attain that herd immunity because it it differs for different diseases um and and we don't know you know, the the thing you need to do in, in this period is delay the peak of the epidemic, slow it down, because we don't want the whole lump of uh, everybody falling ill landing on the NHS at the same time. It won't be able to cope and people will die who otherwise would not have needed to die. So you need to push out that that epidemic. And that seems to not be what they're doing. They're not um, they're not taking all the measures that are being taken in some European countries to slow things down. Now, they may be right, and nobody knows what the answer is. And also, the, the answer may be different in different countries. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to report what I'm hearing in terms of the different discussions and, and ideas that are going on around. Okay. And what do you find over there that French companies are doing to either help with the response or to try and adapt to it? I think that is, from what I can tell, I'm not a business expert, but from what I can tell, that that pretty much is the same. You know, there are, there are most companies seem to have business continuity plans and are putting those into action. A lot of people have sent their workforces home and doing what they can remotely. Um, I think one of the really interesting sectors of the working population uh, in all countries will be the gig workers, the people who don't, uh, in principle, have any benefits if they stop work or any income. And that's one example where uh, people are really going to have to show support and solidarity because we none of us want those people going to work sick 
delivering our food, driving our taxis and so on, that would be a threat to the health of the collective. Um, at the same time, we need to support them so that they feel able to stay at home if they think that they're, they're, they have been exposed and or, and or are symptomatic. So that means they have to be able to put food on the table. That means somebody has to provide some support for them in this period. And I've seen the dilemmas discussed around that too. Obviously, companies that employ those people who've been saying for a long time that they're not employees you know, in the legal sense, because that would come with all sorts of responsibilities towards those workers, are now trying to get that balance right where they can support them in this time of crisis, uh, but, uh, you know, not have to treat them in the sense of a full employee, which will, you know, have consequences after the pandemic has passed. In France, the doctors are telling me that that the modelers are telling them that the peak is about 50 days off, so seven weeks off. Uh, from what we can see, France is a couple of weeks behind Italy and uh, the UK is a couple of weeks behind France, but we're all following the same curve. So it's going to get bad here and it's going to get bad in the UK just with a little delay. So in a way, I think what countries should be doing now is learning from each other. Uh, that are that are ahead on the curve. So you know there was an unhelpful period where people were saying, "What have the Italians done wrong? They've messed up." You know, it was such a disaster in that country. I don't think they did anything wrong at all. Um, I think that they uh, were just dealing with a crisis that nobody was prepared for. And this is going to come to France next, and then uh, I think it's already in Spain, and then it'll come to the UK. So businesses need to think in that way too. So there you have it. I hope you found that as interesting and as useful as I did. I have learned a lot more in the last 45 minutes than I've learned in the last 45 days of listening to my mates, the other so-called experts and social media. Thanks a lot for watching. Uh, if you've got any comments, if you've been affected by Corona in any way, or you've got any advice uh, you know, for, for our audience, please comment below as always. And uh, make sure you subscribe if you're not already doing so. Thank you for listening to The Matt Haycock Show. For more Matt, check out his YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Matt Haycox. Or go stalk him on Instagram and Twitter, The Matt Haycox. And we'll see you soon.